You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We continue with our series in the Psalms this summer with Psalm 76, which begins on page 487 of your Pew Bible. And as always, we like to tell folks that if you don't have a Bible of your own at home, please take one with you after the service. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment, to save all the humble of the earth. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Gospel reading comes from John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. You can find it on page 888 of your Bible. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Let's, uh, let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these words of scripture of the psalmist in 76, and we think on this beautiful words out of the gospel of John about your deep love for the world as it's manifest in Jesus, would you help us to know how we might be personally encouraged by these truths and how we might be personally but also a community that inhabits their truth for the sake of the world. Lead us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. This is a quote that's attributed and comes to us from Julian of Norwich. She was a 15th century English mystic. And those words sort of reverberate in many different contexts, and they get played out in many contexts, very often in contexts in which all is not well. When there's suffering or difficulty or struggle of some sort, These words that she writes really out of her own story and her own experience of God's love and mercy are given to us to sustain us, to sort of hold our imagination in a truth beyond the stuff that's playing out in life. So I just wonder as we come into this worship time this morning, like what's playing out in your life? What happened this week for you? What were the highs and the lows? I don't know if you're an individual or a family that sort of takes stock of the week or the days and you sort of think, where did I experience some form of consolation where life seemed to be thriving and beautiful and in sync with God? Or where was it disconsolate? Where was it a desolation? Where was it a struggle and a difficulty because it just felt really, really bumpy? And that comes to us in so many different ways. This week I was in New York City for uh, Tim Keller's memorial service, some of you know that I worked at Redeemer for a number of years in the early part of my ministerial life. And so we, I gathered with people to mourn the loss of a mentor. Um, but what that meant for me was not just the mourning of a loss of a mentor, the celebration of his life, but it meant that I was going to bump into friends that I don't see very often. And there's a loss in that, right? There's this like tremendous joy. I found myself shouting out to someone that in, in the midst of this solemn assembly, I was like, hey, I'm like, oh, wait, I'm in a funeral. The enthusiasm, but then the loss that we feel, right? How how are you experiencing a bumpy life? What does loss look like for you this morning as you've come? Maybe it was a hard relational situation in your home or with a friend or with a neighbor or a child, or maybe it's between siblings or maybe it's something in the workplace or maybe it's your own health as it declines or you're just getting older, whatever, right? What, where are you experiencing the not wellness of life? Hold that in mind as we think about these words of Julian of Norwich, but also as we think about the words of the psalmist because Psalm 76 is a psalm that similarly anchors hope in much the same conviction of Julian's, which was this that the God who is love is also the God who is powerful. And he is the God who will make good on his promises of salvation, that he will sort of pull all the loose threads of life toward the fullness of who Jesus is. And that's the world that we belong to. And so she could be in the midst of suffering and the psalmist can be in the midst of suffering and we're remembering that what God is doing with us even now when it doesn't feel like he's doing much He's moving us toward that space where all shall be well. I like to think about three things in this psalm, presence, power, and peace. A friend of mine that I know from the previous service, he says, Tuck, I don't know that you've ever used um, three Ps or three anything. 
right? In a sermon, but here we go, three Ps. Power or presence, power, and peace. So first presence, verses one to two. Just remember, this is a Psalm of Asaph. And like the ones that we've already been looking at, it's generally thought that the Psalms that Asaph penned are Psalms that come to us from a period of suffering, not well-being. In other words, this is, a, this, is a, this is Israel in exile, or this is the psalmist in exile. This is struggle. This is an awareness of struggle. All is not well. Um, and it's interesting that in this particular psalm, we open up with this reference to both Judah and Israel. And if you know the history of Israel, you know that the tribes, the, 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 the people of God in the land get divided, right? North and south, Israel and Judah. But here, the psalmist is still imagining a wholeness to that reality and remembers that God is known there. God is present there. God is not far away from there. But if you were to look at the experience of either Israel or Judah in the moment, you'd wonder where God was. Goes on and references Salem and Zion, both words that are used very often in scripture to gesture in the direction of either Jerusalem on the one hand, right? The city of God as its earthly manifestation or its heavenly reality, but also Zion and, and, and the tent of the Lord, right? So the psalmist is sort of moving us to this sense in which we recognize the very presence of God among his people. The temple was the space in which it was believed and understood that our world and God's world intimately connects. And whenever we would gather for worship in that space, whenever God's people would gather for worship, even to some degree as we gather for worship this morning, we're remembering this connection between God's world and our world as the source of our hope. And so what the psalmist is doing here, right out of the gates, right as he begins this song of worship, is he's anchoring heart and mind in God as the source of peace and wholeness, not anything else. And that's so important because we attach ourselves to all kinds of things that we think, right, will bring us happiness or joy or peace in some sense. But what the psalmist is saying in a moment when all of those previous attachments aren't working very well, says it's God, it's God. He's the source of peace and wholeness. God's presence is not held captive ever, ever. It doesn't matter what's happening in your world, how it may be falling apart. Nothing takes God's presence captive, nothing. It's a beautiful thing and a helpful thing for us to remember, particularly if you find yourself to have had some bumpy spots this week, things that were hard, things that didn't go well. Presence, now power, second. Verses three to 10 and really most of the Psalm is really helping us to understand God's greater power than human wickedness, right? It's, that's the contrast. And we see it, it shows up in this psalm as the psalmist sort of calls to mind, you know, weapons of warfare, right? Flashing arrows, shields, swords, weapons of horses, uh, chariots, right? Human violence as it takes up sword to wage war in some sense, right? In other words, what's in the psalmist's mind are all of the overt ways that we experience violence. So it's, it's the aggressive violence that's in mind, but I wanna suggest it's also the passive violence that's in mind. It's all of the ways that we fail to utilize our power towards a good end, that we don't do the good that we should do. You know, we would call that in some ways sins of omission, right? The good that we should have done that we didn't do. 
And so what happens in that situation is our neighbors suffer. We suffer in a world that lives that way. We live in this world of scarcity, a scarcity mindset. And whenever we do that, we withhold good and we go to war for good. And that's the struggle of human nature. And the psalmist says God's power is greater than that force. However, it's manifesting itself in your life or in your world. Verse nine, God is a God who rises to save the humble. Some translations here take this word for humility and they translate it, God arises for the meek of the land, right? Uh, Some translations will say, if you're reading in different translations, it'll say God arises for the afflicted of the land. Or Eugene Peterson has the interesting translation. He said, God saves the wretched of the land. Pulling those words together is really kind of helpful because it helps you see that we're not like getting a lesson on humility here, but we're understanding that there are people in our world that experience the weight of this aggression, this violence. Whether it's the good that isn't done or the harm that is overtly leveled against someone. We live in a world where there are some people who disproportionately experience the weight of that sin. And what the psalmist reminds us is that God remembers them. He hears them. And so if you look at your life and you think, I'm a mourner, I have poverty of spirit or poverty, I'm experiencing the brokenness of our world The good news is that God hears you. He hears your story. He knows what happened in your life this week. He knows what will happen in your life in the coming week. He's aware of your struggles as we were singing about just a few moments ago. The psalmist has in mind those persons that are harmed by human wrath and violence and reminds us that God hears them. Verse 10 is an interesting verse because there we read, the wrath of man shall praise you and the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. So we could be in a situation and we could say, but God hears us, but you're also mindful of this very loud voice out in the world, right? As it's coming to us from wrathful human beings, right? Or the anger, the violence that exists in our world. And you could easily, even though you know God knows your struggles, be afraid, But what the psalmist tells us here is that even that will be turned in a new direction. It will not reach its ending. It will not flourish in the way that it intends to flourish, but rather wrath will be turned to praise. And the remnant of wrath, God will put on the way I put on a belt this morning. It's almost meaningless when contrasted with his great power. God's powerful goodness is such that nothing in life is wasted. Not even wrath, it's redirected in the direction of praise. Now that's hard to know exactly what that means, right? I mean, I'm like, what does that mean? What what in the world are you talking about? I don't think I've ever experienced that. I don't even know how to imagine that. Let me give you two, two contexts for thinking about this. The first is something Paul says in Philippians chapter two. And it's that great place in that chapter where Paul has remembered the greatness of Jesus and the self-emptying of Jesus, right? Though he was God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself and took the form of a servant. In other words, Jesus, when he entered human life, 
He consistently identified with who? The wretched of the land. The people most experiencing the brokenness of this world, the failure of love, Jesus consistently identifies with those individuals. And the whole of his life sort of demonstrates that he just got to the margins himself. And he was crucified in that context of life. And Paul says, but God raised him up and gave him the name that is the highest name. And then these really important words, that a day is coming when all above and below will bend the knee to the truthfulness of who Jesus is. I think the psalmist is some, has something like that in mind, that there will come a moment when even the most wrathful will have to acknowledge the truthfulness of Jesus' love. Or think of the verse in Romans 8, verses eight, right? eight verse 28, right? It's a verse that we often speak in the time of suffering, when something bad is going on in our life, right? God causes all things to work together for the good to those that love him and are called according to his purposes. What that doesn't mean is that you and I are promised a Disney-like ending in our lives, right? It doesn't mean that, you know, it's hard today, but tomorrow it's Walt Disney. It's not that. Rather, what Paul is teaching the church of his day, which was a church that was suffering and which the rest of the chapter goes on to talk about, is that nothing will separate you from the love that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Not even if you encounter the most wrathful anger of another citizen, it won't separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God takes your story in a different direction than all of those flaming arrows, all of those difficulties that come our way. Our stories go somewhere else than the wishes of the works of evil as they would dictate. Eugene Peterson commenting on this particular verse he says this, he says, nothing is lost in the divine economy. Even the chaos and the waste of battle rebound to God's glory. And then he says this, no instance of human wrath seemed more wasteful than that which put Jesus on the cross. Think about that. We so often imagine ourselves as persons that if we're just given the right data points, that we'll make wise decisions. And yet the story of Jesus tells us the exact opposite is true. In that wasteful moment of human wrath against the very Son of God, truth incarnate, Peterson closes and says this, he says, but where sin abounded, much more did grace because God raised him up. God set him apart. He lifts him up so that we might see and behold him and that in him all manner of things shall be well. And that's the hope that he gives to the world. Now quickly, the psalm ends with this reflection, I think, on peace. And it comes to us by way of an invitation. And the invitation is that we would be people that enter the peace of God through a vowed life with God, right? A vowed life with God. In other words, there's an urging at the conclusion of this psalm that we'd be intentional about our life with God, that we wouldn't be people, if you think about the quote that I shared last week from C.S. Lewis, right? The lie that fell into the human heart was that it's possible to discover a happiness that doesn't include God and can be had without him. The vowed life is the life that says, no, that's a lie. I come to this God and I live with him. I perform my vows, which simply means you stay with him. 
So as you go out in benediction in just a few moments into the streets of Richmond and into your own homes and into your work this week or out to a vacation, you're meant to live a life that is staying with Jesus in those places as the epicenter of your life, that it's his nearness that animates and gives life to you. And the invitation is really for all who will hear, neighbors near and far, for the world itself, I think we could say. And our gospel reading certainly reminds us that it is, in fact, God's love for the whole world that leads him to send the Son. When Jesus speaks of his life, he identifies himself as the new and greater temple, right? We see that even in John's gospel. And we are meant, therefore, I think, to understand that heaven and earth connect uniquely in the person of Jesus. And so his life of love that was lived as lowly and his life of obedience that was lived in the humility that leads him to the cross and the life that he's granted in resurrection as the father raises him up and reanimates his life by the spirit, right? Setting him apart, the name above all names. We're meant to understand that we are to draw near him and find life in him. And whenever we come to him, we begin to taste this life of peace now, even in the middle of the darkness of life. It's interesting, as we were singing just a few moments ago, I was thinking about that song, right? There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. And I was just thinking about what is it like when you're in the middle of suffering? What sometimes can bring a smile to your face. And sometimes it's not actually the reversal of the suffering, it's just the presence of someone that you find dear. Someone that you just love and they come into, your, into the room and it doesn't matter what you're experiencing, you just light up. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever seen that in someone? And that's the kind of idea that the psalmist is urging us to get near God in that way or to understand that he gets near us in that way. To live a vowed life to God is to live a life wed to Jesus so that in the course of this week, just this week, that you stay with him, that you stay near him, and you let him light up your life in the midst of whatever darkness or difficulty or struggle you're coming to, that you're living with this great assurance that because of his dying love for you, that we are now gathered up into his future. That is the hope of the Christian. I want to close with this prayer from the liturgy that's within the Anglican Church of Kenya. Um, we don't use that. I don't know if Dan ever uses or introduces that liturgy. It's one that some of our churches do come to periodically in the course of a church year. But I want to just share this prayer with you because I find it just so incredibly beautiful and hopeful, particularly if you're in a space of some kind of suffering. It says this, O oh God of our ancestors, God of our people, before whose face the human generations pass away, we thank you that in you we are kept safe forever. And listen to this, and that the broken fragments of our history are gathered up in the redeeming act of your dear son, remembered in this holy sacrament. Help us to walk daily in the communion of saints, declaring our faith in the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body. And now send us out in the power of your Holy Spirit to live and work for your praise and your glory. Friends, we come to this Savior 
who loves us so well, who keeps our life safe forever. Even if we're encountering danger, he keeps us safe. And he gathers up even those parts of our story, personally, our collective story, in the community or in a city or in a country or in the world itself. He gathers those broken fragments that feel almost always like they're going nowhere good. And he gathers them to himself in his death and in his resurrection. And he promises a very different future. And it's in this gracious relationship of love and peace that we're invited to vow ourselves, to wed ourselves to this Jesus who loves us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we continue to think on these words, and particularly as we come to your table this morning in just a few moments, that we would remember the dying and the rising love of Jesus, our Savior, that there's a unique way in which you have loved us that only you could love us. And so where we lack hope, would you fill us with hope? Where we lack courage, would you inspire courage? And would you help us to be those persons in that community that lives this hope in behalf of the world, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.